This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, the legal research platform chosen by over 40,000 legal organizations for the tradition of editorial excellence combined with the most advanced technology. Learn more at westlawnext.com. We've heard the expression, you don't have to get theatrical about it. But if you're a lawyer in front of a jury, maybe you should. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and that's what we're discussing today at the ABA Journal podcast. Joining me are David Ball, a jury consultant and the author of Theater Tips and Strategies for Jury Trials, and Joshua Carton, an actor who is president of Communication Arts. The Los Angeles business teaches litigators about applying communication skills and theater techniques to trial advocacy. I have a question for both of you initially. Opening statements. What do jurors think if you use notes during those? Well, Notes for a lot of people are crutches. They need them a lot less than they, than they think they need them. But it, and Josh was absolutely right. It's not a matter of whether notes are not notes. It's really how you use them. Uh, if it's something you glance at to see what to say next and then get back in contact with the jury, there's nothing wrong with that. It's certainly better than memorizing it or saying, uh, 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 uh. So it's nice to have a guide to what you're going to say. But what you need to do when you're looking at them is, Look at the notes, see what you're supposed to say next, and then come on back up and make eye contact with the jurors before you start to talk. And then talk to them. It's not about notes. Uh, And then when you're finished making your point, and only then, then go back and look for your next note. Don't be down looking for your note while you're still finishing what you were were saying so that the, the last and usually most important things that you're saying in that segment, you're now talking to your notes. Anything, if there's words coming out of your mouth, you need to be in contact as much as possible with the jurors and never talk to a note or the floor or the wall. I should add one other thing. Do not use PowerPoint to introduce new topics in an opening or a seminar or any place else. David, I was going to... Say something about that because sure, go ahead. you said, well, you said this great thing once, well, many times, about um, don't let fre- friends don't let friends overuse power. <laughs> That's right. Well, I was making me think because of what David said about notes. The live human connection, that's just got to happen somewhere. And it can't happen 24, you know, it can't happen every split second. But it has to happen somewhere. And if the speaker thinks that anything, whether it's memorized text or in the name of, well, younger people expect visual imagery, whatever it is, it's seen as the source rather than the human being who's talking and sharing. Uh, It becomes dangerous because... All that stuff is, you can get that elsewhere. The only thing you cannot get when someone's talking to you anywhere else is that person. So, like any new technology, it's not new anymore, uh, it becomes something people over-rely on. And um, I've seen presentations where people stand in the dark so they can't be seen and show an outline of the language that they're using. It's literally an outline. And they'll say, oh, well, that's good because some people are visual learners. And, um, you know, it makes me almost throw a clot 
as they say. And then, you know, they'll confess, oh, well, it's really a crutch for me. And obviously it's gone so far past now, uh, just words. I mean, there's brilliant use of it, but it doesn't replace needing the live human connection. Well, unfortunately, it, 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 it replaces it. It just doesn't replace the need for it. Yeah. Uh, you watch in a room, even a seminar, when people, when someone's using PowerPoint, and again, I'm qualifying it, to introduce new things. It's very different later on and very much easier to use, but in an opening, <clears throat> you put up that new thought, and people stare at it. And they, the dangerous thing that happens is not just that they're out of contact with the attorney because they're staring at a screen, but they now think they've got the gist of what you're going to say, so they tend to stop listening as carefully. This is such an important problem that the uh, military services have now barred the use of PowerPoint in battle briefings, pre-battle briefings, and most corporations have done the same for their meetings because it's so clearly known. Lawyers still trudge on like nothing has been learned about PowerPoint. They love it because it means they don't need notes. They just put the next thing up on the screen, they look at the screen, and now they have to, then they know what to talk about next. What I suggest is they put the whole PowerPoint series on a notebook, which is a notebook computer, which they can see and the jury cannot, and simply program it so that they can glance down and see the next topic and then not show it to the jury until after they've explained that new point, not before. So the point's only up for a moment and they see it, and then you go on to your next topic. That's okay, but this thing of putting, okay, now we're going to talk about demographics in Boston. And so they sit there staring at that label, barely listening to the attorney, being barely paying attention to the attorney. If you ask them later what they were listening to, they say, I don't know something about Boston. And you can't see the attorney. Exactly. Because they're in the dark, and so and if they are not fully in the dark, then the listener has to make a choice of who should I be paying attention to. And they almost always pick the screen. Right, and it's that back to the McLuhan's electronic fireplace. I mean, this brings up for me something that underlines all of this, which is the stage fright. It is harrowing to stand in front of people and be seen. And um, it's something every actor has to train to deal with. Well, let me not say every, I don't know. but um, And some of the best ones have the hardest time with it. They say that acting, I think, is being um, public, being private in public. So to make that uh, personal human connection with people who at first you don't know and in, you know, the courtroom the stakes are enormous. But if in the name of dealing with it and coming up with strategies so that, quote, the nervousness doesn't show, anytime you're trying to fake something, solve it by hiding from it. And so when it, it ultimately never gets done. That's why when we're talking about notes or we're talking about PowerPoint, if any of that's done in the name of, oh, well, it helps me get over the nervousness, it's the wrong solution. It is very much the wrong solution. Keep in mind the jury trials and theater, since that's our topic today, started, were started by the exact same individuals 2,500 years ago in Greece. And the format is the same and the requirements for it is the same. 
It is a live event between human beings on the stage and human beings in the audience or jury. Anything that intrudes, you know, is this nonsense about this is a media generation, they love media. No, no, they don't. They much prefer live. If you're going to be a good talking head on a deposition or anything else, you get paid a heck of a lot of money for being an anchor on television. Uh, very few people can stay interesting on video. Um, unless they're idiots, as most of the pundits might be today, but, but you know, unless they're you know, tap dancing or something. Uh, but just for, for normal conversation, this is a live event, and anything that gets between you and the live, you don't have the resources of Hollywood here, uh, anything that gets between you and the live event, such as talking to your notes, that gets between you and the live event, relying on PowerPoints up there that they're going to be staring at, that gets between you and the live event. Folding your arms in front of your chest because you're more comfortable that way is getting between you and the live event, unless you're interested in communicating your live arms, but they're not very persuasive. Uh, so th th that is a very big deal. And what's unfortunately happened, especially with the rise of the American Law School, is that kind of thing has been lost. It had not been lost in the 19th century. Trials in the 19th century were still a lot closer to what the Greeks invented. But then the law school took over, and the law schools don't don't really pay much attention to that sort of thing. And I'm not sure they should. That might be stuff for post-law school or special classes or something. They, they do have a lot of concepts to teach. But we want the live event. And the jurors, the jurors ultimately are judging human actions by by human people, not you know not 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 a bunch of technical stuff um, and that's nothing to say there's anything wrong with technical stuff if you use it well most people do not very quick example of that when you I know we're on openings but when you uh, impeach a witness using a high fancy computer program you can impeach that witness to death in about 13 seconds ah so you're saying this now well let's look at you saying it differently in your deposition you push a button and the person's impeached and you think you've scored a big point. Well, you haven't, because it didn't take any time. It's nowhere near as effective as turning around, walking over to the table, picking up the deposition, finding the source of the deposition quote you want, walking back to the witness, and then reading it to him or asking him to read it. You've now taken 30, 45, or 45 seconds in some very dramatic pauses, some very interesting stuff going on. And so you put a whole human event gone into that impeachment and there's nothing human about pushing the button on the on the uh, technical stuff. Remember, the people who love the technical stuff are the people who sell the technical stuff. Uh, just make sure it helps you be human and doesn't doesn't get in your way. Well, what you just said, I thought that was interesting, because I know being a trial lawyer, you're a storyteller, basically, and I was curious about how you would tell your story through a witness, particularly on a cross where you haven't prepped that witness. Basically, is that how you would do it? Is a lot of it comes on you, the lawyer? Well, it's the series of questions you, you are asking that, is, that are telling the story. The answers are not relevant. You know the answers, though so, uh, I mean, they're relevant legally, but what the jury is hearing is your questions followed by the witness saying yes or no, depending on whichever you want, as long as you stay consistent, and the story is being told through your questions. If you understand what a story is, which is another issue. Uh, the thing of a story is an extremely powerful 
tool. It's, it's our earliest method of conveying complicated information. The lack of story, in, in my view, is that it's single-handedly responsible for poetry going from one of the most important and common and popular art forms to one of the least used and listened to. And that happened when narrative stories stopped being used in poetry. But if you think back to the great poets of the past, almost all the great poetry was narrative, and everyone loved it. By narrative, they simply mean it has a story. So no way to explain today what story is. But anything you're doing, I don't care what it is, is part of the story. And if you don't understand what constitutes a story, uh, which may be more than we can go into today and might be the basis for a whole other webinar, uh, then then you're probably teaching jurors in, in, in an inefficient and unmemorable way compared to what you could be doing. The uh, cross-examination, uh, I've heard, is the only reason to do it is for the opportunity for the lawyer to retell her or his story. And this brings up something else about the live human event and David, what you were saying about the resources of Hollywood, when we're watching a something on, on a video screen or a computer screen or a movie or tele, any of that, what we're seeing has been determined by an editor or the camera person. In the courtroom, people can look anywhere. So, for example, the lawyer gets taught on direct examination, the jurors should be looking at the witness, and uh, almost every lawyer's had the experience of carefully preparing a witness who comes apart on the stand, in which case what a director understands is that you're responsible for, in that case, you want the jurors looking at you, the attorney confirming that story, and that's not a trick, but in real life it happens all the time. We're not always looking where we're supposed to be looking. We're looking at uh, what for us at that moment is the most compelling human stimulus or, or invitation. So on a cross-examination, who is that lawyer who's cross-examining doing it for? And if you're telling the story through these questions, you're doing it for the jury. And uh, too often no contact is made with the jury. Now, I'm not saying that you pander and ignore the witness. And then, you know, people who first get this concept will do that. But if you are cross-examining a uh, celebrity, uh, at the beginning of that cross-examination, the jurors are not going to be looking at you. Where in film and television, the editor is going to let the audience see who they want, you know, who, who you want them to see. So uh, all of it is an awareness that a director has. So when you had first introduced me, Stephanie, and said an actor, part of what let me know how to find my way through some of this is that I'd also worked as a writer and as a director. And those are a director's awarenesses. And they're very doable. I mean, it's not uh, voodoo but it is an awareness that doesn't come from reading law books. Um, and unfortunately, it's not an awareness that comes, sorry, Joshua, it doesn't come from doing a ton of trials either because you don't learn the habits doing the trials. There's, they've, they've actually done a study 
that everything we know about how visual information is absorbed is defied by law books. And, <laughs> True. Um, and, and you know, that the indoctrination starts there. The other thing about law schools, and David, you were talking about that, is, is that too often the learning is shame-based. Um, someone is called upon... And um, they are called upon to basically either satisfy the professor's expectation or be shamed. And uh, I'll be teaching in a law school. I'll be talking to a group. And very nicely brought up young people will yawn openly in my face. And it's because they're used to feeling that they're invisible. And so the awareness in the courtroom that you are going to be watched, and you have to be watched. Um, as a juror, I need to rely upon you that you're not hiding from me, because if you're hiding yourself, what else could you be hiding? So to tolerate being watched and to tolerate being heard, these are, these are actors' awarenesses, yeah, that you bring to it. My question is, is sometimes lawyers want to come across as being really tough lawyers who will fight to the death for a client, and I can see where clients would like that. But that personality, I would imagine, can be a turnoff. If you're not, this is not just a matter of a turnoff. If you are, a, in the view of the jury, a tough lawyer, a warrior for your client, a, which is a word applied to this business that... But they use it's, a nice edu- yeah. it's a nice education <laughs> word, but please leave it outside the courtroom. You know, you get up and you can just control the hell out of them on cross-examination. I'm not that concerned with whether they like or dislike a warrior. I am concerned with if, they per- if the jury perceives you that way, they trust less all of the information you elicit in the cross-examination. Well, of course he got the truck driver to say that. Anybody would say anything at the hands of that person. So if you if you one of the most common complaints that jurors have about lawyers is why did he bully those people? Right. Why did he do that? He's the one in the courtroom with all the power, and yet there he is bullying. And this I don't care who you're bullying; it can be you know the, a corporation president. You're still at a disadvantage in, in the eyes of the lawyer. A skillful lawyer does not bully, does not overtly manipulate. They do what I call invisible cross control techniques. And it's the kid coming out of law school who's been taught, well, you need to control on cross-examination. They come out and control. they got two swords, a cannon, and a lion to help them do it. And so the jury's response is, well, that was a nice show, but I'm certainly not going to trust any of the uh, testimony he elicited. So, yes, be a warrior for your client. Tell him I'm going to go out and, and blow up the world for you. But in front of the jurors, you are a teacher. You are an elicitor of information. You are a colleague with the jury. Nobody loves watching anger and arrogance and all that stuff. Now, that said, there are a few lawyers who can get away with it, but they are very, very few. And it's usually not the people who think they can get away with it. Can you give me an example of what you mean by invisible cross-control? It's really hard to do that out of context. A lot of it is just plain tone of voice. Sometimes it's ignoring the basic rules that say, you know, always ask closed-ended questions. And once in a while, you can say, tell me about that. Explain yourself. How do you feel about that? The same way you might deal with someone on cross, uh, on, uh, on direct examination. People say, oh, no, no, you've got to control them all the time. Not if you know what they're going to say and not if you're any good at the job. 
we have controlling methods. You know, ask a close-ended question with the impact of the question as close as possible to the end of the question so they don't have time to think. Give them time to think. They're going to lie. It's even better if they've had time to think. Uh, but it's hard to give you specific examples out of, out of context for that. But it's, a lot of it is just plain tone of voice. You, you were there by 5 o'clock, weren't you? Instead of, you were there by 5 o'clock. The, the first is you're talking to them as if you and I already agree in advance. We're friends. We're all buddies here. The other is you sniveling, slimy little jerks. Sorry, Josh. Go ahead. <laughs> so, you weren't addressing that to me. So No, no, not at all. You, no. Slimy, you, no, no, you, you, you weren't sniveling. Um, I think it comes down to respect and respecting the jurors. And if you're asking the jurors, to respect your case and your client, you have to respect them. And if I am putting on a show of a certain kind of behavior, as in I'm trying to convey that I will fight hard for my client, then I'm not really doing it. I am pretending to do it so that I can convey some persona that isn't maybe the one that's needed for the task. I mean... Obviously, David, you've talked a lot and taught a lot and made this huge impact with the uh, model of the reptile. And part of what's in there um, is that it's about survival and that uh, jurors need to know that the decision they make is going to be one that lets them survive is going to help them survive. I hope that's okay, my summarizing like that. Well, adaptation is the hallmark of survival, Darwin. Um, So if we see an attorney who will not adapt to the moment so that when there is a need in this moment not to be a, you know, destroying warrior. I I, I think you're (laughs) – Sorry? I say jerk, but okay. Yeah. Um, there, then we're seeing a, an attorney who is not adapting, and therefore this is somebody who really is not on a survival track. I mean, even a leaf turns to the light, you know. So the adaptation uh, to the present situation which the jurors are in, I think is part of what... Stephanie, is is the answer to your question about the danger of trying to convey something, which is how am I doing, as opposed to what am I doing? Am I protecting? Am I communicating? Even communicating, I think, is insufficient. Am I teaching? Am I taking care of the jurors in this moment? And again, that's an actor's vocabulary. What is my objective and what's the verb I'm using to get there? To guide, to teach, to help, that sort of thing, as opposed to beat the hell out of somebody. And think in terms of what is the jury to make of a case if it requires a lawyer who's a warrior or a manipulator or a controller? And how good can the case be, the jurors think? And this is is subconsciously going on. It doesn't, they don't usually sit there dwelling on it, but it's there. When we watch somebody in in a courtroom who's going through all those Amateur gyrations, and that's what I call them. They're amateur gyrations to control, to fight, to be the warrior because they've mistaken a training attitude for a performance attitude. 
the jurors simply sit there and say, boy, if this is a good case, nobody would have to do all that. And that really undermines the way in which the jurors perceive and react to virtually every piece of evidence in the case. It costs people cases when they do that. Nothing theoretical about that. That, that is an absolute true statement. Take it back to theater. If you see somebody acting like that in the theater, I mean, if you see a character acting in, in, in a manipulative way, uh, are you really going to say, this is, the, this is the character I'm going to cheer for? Unless we're already on that person's side. But if you're debating which side to be on, let, let the case do the win for you, not, not, and what you, your strategies. But not, don't come on with a Sherman tank. Well, yeah, you win more fly. What is it? Uh, you win more flies with honey. Not that you want to win flies, but you get the point. Do you think that to be believable to a jury, does a lawyer have to appear to be likable? I don't. I have no idea how Joshua feels, but I don't. Okay. No, I agree with you. Um, and can you tell me why, Josh? Well, likable is such a subjective measure. And, you know, in seventh grade, I was a hero. And in sixth grade, I was Destiny's dish rag. And one year, I was popular. <laughs> and another year, you know, I wasn't. And worrying about being likable is just, um, I mean, that's what makes adolescence such hell. I think if you do to the very best you possibly can, which, by the way, does not mean staying in your comfort zone. It means whatever is necessary, you know, a commitment beyond any considerations of do I look good, am I likable, to really solve the task of bringing the truth to the jurors um, in a way that lets them make a informed choice that will be good for them and your client and that they see your client as one of them, no matter how divergent life experience has, you know, uh, uh, spread their paths. That is the best you can do. That's the only litmus of credibility I've heard that it's the one who goes to the most, who's the most credible, uh, as opposed to the most likable. And I think that if you are doing that, you could be described as likable, not necessarily somebody who, you know, uh, um, I want to go to a tailgate party with. <laughs> Does that mean you're turning down my recent invitation? Um, but somebody who I trust and who I can endorse and um, who I can trust, who's there to protect all of us. That I can go with. But like, I mean, oh, that's just harrowing worrying about if you're likable. Think about the teachers you had who were your best teachers. Some of them were very likable. Some of them you're afraid to approach. Some of them were distant. Some of them, uh, I'm not saying we, you want to be a person we hate, but whether you like the teacher is a, perhaps a measure of success for someone teaching third grade. Uh, but for someone working with adults, they will like you if you teach them well. If you don't, you can smile and dance and make jokes with them and be pleasant and seem like a likable person all you want, and they may like you less 
because they'll see right through your act. There's a very famous case years ago where I remember hearing that the uh, expert who was brought on, the jurors couldn't wait. They loved him. Um, he was fantastic. They couldn't wait for him to come back when he was recalled. Now, they didn't decide for those that side. They said, well, of course, we didn't believe anything. No, he was fun to watch. But he was enormously likable. And for <laughs> some reason, I don't know why, but Betty Davis has just come up in my mind, speaking of you know, <laughs> celebrated actors. Um, she was not likable. But, boy, you know, we stayed watching her forever and we liked her yeah in 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 a more important sense of the word like right look at the word like itself the word like means i am finding a similarity with you that i appreciate that's what like actually meant originally there's a there's a contact here it doesn't mean (laughs) that i'm going to a tailgate party i want one of the most uncomfortable things i think we ever see in a courtroom is an attorney trying to be liked. Hmm. It's it's as bad as arrogance in front of a jury, which is it's pretty cringeable. It's yeah, and it's it tell it, it, first of all, if you're trying to be liked, you are automatically not being honest by definition. You're doing something artificial to get a response that you wouldn't get if you were being normal. So the jurors right there in full view of the jurors you're saying uh, I want you to smile with me and it's okay if you don't trust me. And that's that's kind of silly. There are some people who are enormously warm and likable, and does that help them? Yes, every natural attribute uh, can help you. But think of it this way. If if you're not all that likable when you talk to a jury uh, and you try to pretend to be, it's like if you get a scrawny little person in there trying to be a muscle man. It's it's just a total fraud, And, and, and you don't need to do it. We like teachers. We like guides. We like people who are fair with others, even when the others are on the other side. We, we like those things. We appreciate those things. And most important, those are the people we wish to follow. Well, that's what I was just thinking, David, when you were saying we like them, we like them. And my experience of third grade, um, and she was a monster. Well, you went to that Catholic sister. school, didn't you? But we wanted them to like us. Yes. And that is a piece of that exchange, I think, that goes on. Hmm. I go, I'm sorry, not I think, I know, that goes on between attorney and juror. That's everything that I have. Do either of you want to add anything? I would like to put a warning in here. When attorneys see the word theater or theatrical, yeah. It is a, it's, it's dangerous. It's like telling them to be warriors. It's a useful thing in the teaching level. Don't care. The thing about theater when it works, or movies, the thing about it when it works is that its techniques were utterly invisible, yeah. utterly and completely uh, uh, for a realistic context. You didn't see all the, the artificial things that went into manipulating the audience into being moved to their soul by a production of King Lear. That stuff never occurs to them. So if you carry this theater stuff as a, like any strategy or technique, uh, you have to use it. Don't let it take you over. I don't know how to put the Joshua, maybe you can put that better because I know you know what I'm talking about. 
It's the same difficulty. I mean, you know, a word like theatrics. When is it time to use theatrics? And it's like bring on the tumblers, you know, the jugglers, the clowns. It's also for me the problem with the use of the word audience. You and I can go see King Lear, be utterly just, you know, our hearts are broken and mended again, and, 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 and tragedy has achieved its center. And we go out and we have a drink. At the end of the presentation of the case, those jurors are not an audience. They are your co-authors. They have to be moved to take an action. And so any of this language, theatrics, audience, acting, um, script, any of it, if it's taken as a uh, way out of solving the real problem, becomes, as you say, very dangerous. All right. Well, thank you both so much for your time. I appreciate it. Wait, I thought you said we had two or three hours. Yeah, we're just getting warmed up here. We have a whole bunch of great gossip stories about things that we were going to tell you. Well, I'd be I'd be thrilled to have you guys back another time. This was anytime. This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, the legal research platform chosen by over 40,000 legal organizations for the tradition of editorial excellence combined with the most advanced technology. Learn more at westlawnext.com.